It's time for class. Civics just doesn't begin and end on election day. This is Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged with political strategist L. Joy Williams on Sirius XM's Urban View. Welcome to Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged. I am your host, your civics teacher and neighborhood political strategist L. Joy Williams, and I am so glad that you made it to class this morning. Now, there have been numerous discussions, debates, and social media discourse about the current social justice movements, comparing them to the movements of the 60s and the 70s, who's qualified to lead, what role electoral politics has in justice, and how societal racism is proliferated in this season of racial backlash. This morning, we're going to talk about how the immediacy of media via cell phones, social media, and the internet overall play a role in the current movement. Coming to the front of the class to join us in that discussion are the two authors of the new book, Seen and Unseen, Technology, Social Media, and the Fight for Racial Justice, Mark Lamont Hill and Todd Brewster. Mark Mont Hill is currently the host of BET News and Black News Tonight and is the Steve Charles Chair in Media, Cities, and Solutions at Temple University. He's the founder and director of the Education Center and the owner of Uncle Bobby's Coffee and Books in Philadelphia. Todd Brewster is a veteran journalist and historian who has worked as an editor for Time and Life and as a senior producer for ABC News. He was the founding director of the Center for Oral History at West Point and the executive producer of Into Harm's Way, an award-winning documentary about the West Point class of 1967. He has taught journalism at Temple University and Mount Holyoke College. He's a native of Indianapolis. Brewster was also inducted into the Indiana Journalism Hall of Fame in 2000. So thank you to the both of you for joining us. So I'm going to start where we always start. And Mark, I want to start with you telling us the story of your first civic action. My first civic action. That's such an interesting question and one I've never been asked before. So I'm going to actually be thoughtful about this. You know, I, as an activist, you know, I, I feel like my first civic action would be uh, as a teenager when I sort of voluntarily participated in student protests and when I was part of a West Philadelphia organizing movement that was fighting against police brutality in the aftermath of Rodney King in the 90s, you know, we were like, oh, wait a minute, maybe we can stop this stuff everywhere. And that's what we did. And so I was maybe 15 at the time. Now, I had been part of other civic actions, whether it was, you know, going with my parents when the Philadelphia School District was striking or whether it was just going to the voting booth and standing outside as they pulled the lever for Wilson Good to be the first black mayor of Philadelphia, you know, by fighting back against that that racist Rizzo administration. But in some ways that those were, I was there, but you know, I, I was just along for the ride. I didn't, I, it wasn't a willful choice. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna take that one. I get it. A lot of people describe their first civic actions and it's things that they've done with their parents. Some even when they in their womb. And I was like, does that really count? Uh, but, right. but there is a difference when you actively participate. Todd, what about you? Well, I'm considerably older than Mark, so I'm going to reach all the way back to the days of the Vietnam War. I mean, I, I, um, I, I was a, a kid in school in during the Vietnam War, and this was before a very famous court case called Tinker versus Des Moines, uh, 
And uh, I was with a bunch of students who, in our, our school, we decided to wear black armbands to protest the Vietnam War. Well, the school board wanted to ban us from doing this. Now, um, as I said, this Supreme Court case had not yet been heard. And so the, uh, in that case, in the end, granted the right to uh, students, that was very famous, the students do not shed their constitutional rights at the schoolhouse door uh, line from the opinion. Um, but uh, uh, so we, um, we, we donned our armbands and then were uh, punished by the school and, and it had to appear before the school board to make our argument. And I went to a school board meeting where there were probably 200 uh, parents. And this was a time when, when uh, the greatest fear was, of course, of the communist infiltration. And um, uh, so we were uh, branded as, as communist sympathizers in this, this small um, uh, uh, school board meeting. And we had to stand up and stand up for our rights. So it was, a very, very, um, it was very instructive for me to actually uh, be uh, making the case for protest. I'll add one other, if I could, just for a moment, which is that I volunteered for a political campaign for a candidate whose entire budget, Democratic candidate in Indiana, whose entire budget was um, $850 for the uh, congressional campaign for the U.S. Congress. So uh, I was the guy who rode around with him through the uh, rural Indiana, going knocking on doors, talking about the Vietnam War, talking about civil rights. And uh, it was very instructive. And it led me to my career in journalism because really, I realized that people will talk to you. I mean, people want to talk to you. And um, that if you are polite and ask questions in, in a respectful way, that people will be very honest with you. And so it was uh, very instructive to me and I think led to my career in journalism. This is very interesting because, Mark, you and I are the same age. And, you know, my civic actions in terms of protesting and social movement are certainly inspired by what was happening around us. And we can transform that to today when we see young people in the streets, whether in high schools, doing walkouts, things of that nature, how you are influenced by what is happening around you in the world, in your community, to really prompt you to take an action from there. Todd being Vietnam War, my, you know, people in my family having the same experience in terms of what is going on that prompts us there. We're going to take a quick break right here. And when we come back, we're going to talk more with Mark Lamont Hill and Todd Brewster when we come back with more Sunday Civics. All the wahala, all the problems, all the things that you think that you must do to start in this world. Like when the teacher, schoolboy and schoolgirl come together. Who is the teacher? I go let you know. Who is it's the a simple teacher? question. I go Why? Let you know. Why, after so much writing and analysis on the prevalence of police violence directed at people of color, so much data, so many first-person accounts, and finally, so much cell phone and surveillance video. It took the video of the deadly violence used on George Floyd to trigger a broad response of sympathy and outrage about racial injustice. Historians may well ponder this long into the 21st century, but only, of course, if the image of the knee-in-the-neck lynching of Floyd does not recede with time, does not fade like so many other stories of unarmed black men killed by police and vigilantes does not evaporate into the ether like the millions of images traded on Snapchat and Instagram every day. The accounts of others who in recent years met the same or a similar fate as George Floyd are numerous. Even if we recite only some of the names of those who became widely known, Breonna Taylor, Oscar Grant, 
Catherine Johnston, Trayvon Martin, Sandra Bland, Eric Garner, Rakia Boyd, Alton Sterling, Maya Hall, Walter Scott, Renisha McBride, Michael Brown, Ahmaud Arbery, Rayshard Brooks, Philando Castile. But all these victims, each of them gone from us now, share one thing. Our knowledge of them was enhanced through the modern media tools available, through cell phone and surveillance video, Twitter alerts and Facebook groups, and the playing and replaying of footage, both forward and reverse, zoomed in to analyze every movement, zoomed out to determine context, dissected and repurposed, shown in courtrooms and on YouTube and spliced to form memes. Indeed, it was these tools and technologies that provided the unique ability to keep the stories of injustice not only alive, text alone can do that, but compelling and persistent, like an unattended car alarm ringing through the night. That was a clip from the audiobook version of Seen and Unseen, Technology, Social Media, and the Fight for Racial Justice. And we are joined this morning by the authors of that book, Mark Lamont Hill and Todd Brewster. I want to move to the book, Seen and Unseen, as you can see back here. You know, I'm one of those that make notes in the book. I'm sorry. I have to always apologize to book purists, but I already have. (laughs) I broke the spine. I broke the spine. I have notes in it. It's, it's, you know, it's okay. It's my book now. I bought it. (laughs) But I, Mark, want to go back to you because there are a lot of writings out now and soon to be out about the lived experience and the analysis about the current movement that we are in. Share with us what Seen and Unseen specifically contributes to that scholarship that we're in right now. You know, I I think we do a few things, uh, and and I'm very proud of the work uh, that we've done in the book. One thing is we actually unpack some of the most interesting, controversial, uh, world-changing moments in civic action, to use the language of the show, uh, in the last few years that are related to racial just, justice and even racial injustice, right? If we look, for example, at the, the case of George Floyd, we talk about what happens. We unpack what happens. We look at Kyle Rittenhouse, which for many represents something quite the opposite. We talk about Breonna Taylor. We we give people these different sort of moments and we talk about them, we unpack them. So if you're into that, we give you that. But I think our major contribution isn't doing what the journalists do and what the TV shows do, which is to talk about these cases. But one, we, we try to give you a sense of how technology and social media and media more broadly have shaped those moments and how they shape the way we think and the way we talk uh, about racial justice and the, and the way we respond to racial injustice. So it's not enough to just talk about George Floyd and his history and his backstory and all the things that led up to that death sequence, uh, which we do with Derek Chauvin. But we also talk about how important it was for that, for that sister to be holding a camera. Because if no one's holding a camera, no one shows this, then he's just another person who's died. And the police narrative would have prevailed. So we want to show how this technology has and and, and these media spaces have created the opportunity for a different conversation and different representation. But then finally, I think we also dip deep into history because, 
particularly in this era, it's easy to think that everything is new. Every generation thinks all this stuff is new, right? That they're the first people to protest. That they're the first people to fight injustice in a particular way. And what we show is that there's a longstanding tradition of doing this and that even the technology, is, while the technology, the specific technology might be new, the use of technology isn't. Whether it's the camera, whether it's the, 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 uh, the you know, the use of, I mean, we could go down the list, right, in terms of even just photojournalism, right, whether it's the camcorder, the camera, the use of film, these are all technologies that matter. And we want to show throughout history of the various ways that it's happened. Yeah. Todd, I want to bring you into this because, you, as Mark mentioned, you all discuss the history of that from Ida B. Wells and talking about her writings from that time to talking about broadcast news clips of the movements in the 60s and 70s when we see the march across the bridge, right, and how the decision for broadcast news at, the point, at that point to switch the TV you know, switch the, to what is happening on the bridge and what that does to people's consciousness because they can see that. But what's interesting to me is how the internet and social media in general has changed who and what is media, right? Because for a number of us who grew up, media is journalists. It is what appears on TV. It is stories that are developed and researched and fact-checked and things like that. But media now has, you know, it always has had a broad meaning. But now in the instance of the internet, it is really open <laughs> in terms of who creates it, who yeah. shares it from there. Can you talk a bit from your oh, perspective well, on that? I, I mean, I, I think just going off the example that you used, which is Ida B. Wells, Ida B. Wells was, is a, an enormously courageous and important figure in American history. She's a journalist and a scholar, and she, she, she did all the, the hard work to be able to show that the uh, trumped up charges that were being uh, leveled on those who were being lynched uh, were built were, were built on lies. And so she had this extraordinary uh, track record to be able to to point to and to show the injustices that were being done um, in the name of justice. Uh, but look forward now a hundred and some years later, and here we are, and who is the one who's pointing the camera this time? It is Darnella Frazier, who just happened to be walking down the street at that moment in time, a teenager. Um, probably like a lot of the people that are in your in your class, so to speak, right? Um, and she held her camera very, again, very courageously. But her qualifications to do that were that she is a, a, a citizen of the world in the 21st century. She is someone who believes in, in the injustice that was being portrayed in front of her and that it needed to be recorded. So you see the difference. A professional, in the case of Ida B. Wells, um, courageous and, and a landmark figure in American history. And then Dornella Frazier, who's just really any one of us. So the democratization of media is really what we're looking at there. And that means the democratization of the campaign for justice. Um, and so we're seeing that, that, that the camera has now been put in the hands of all of us. And that has a profound difference. In reading the book, the first part of the book, I have to... It, I learned more about George Floyd as a human being in the book that honestly pricked my heart a bit mm -hmm. because what gets lost in uplifting the names that we that we do during protests, during the conversation, fighting for justice, right? We lift up these names. And I think what's lost a lot is the humanity of the people whose lives were stolen. 
right? Mm-hmm. There's this, you know, different narrative. And, you know, I, I wanted to know who these people were. And I think you guys did a really good job, particularly in the beginning on George Floyd in chronicling, like, this is who he this is his humanity. This is who he was as an individual. This is what he was trying to achieve, right? Like this is the context. And that was really important to me because when we have these cases, we hear a lot about the negative, right? And it's always post, right? The person committing, you know, the shooting or whatever never knows all of that context of the history, but it's always put out as the reason why you shouldn't feel guilty about this person losing their life. Oh, they were a drug addict. Oh, they were this, they were that. But in in giving him humanity and sort of giving a story, that was, I want you, either one of you to talk about the choice to do that to really sort of put that in context and what you think it contributes to the overall moment? I, I, I think for us, it's not a choice. You know, we can't tell an honest story uh, without explaining who these people were, both good and bad. I mean, one of the things we begin with is conceding the point that the right was making for different reasons, that George Floyd, for example, was no hero. No, he, he, you know, he didn't do anything heroic on that street when he was killed. But he was a martyr and he was a person. And many of the struggles that we chronicle in the book that George Floyd dealt with, whether it was substance abuse, whether it was you know trying to figure out his way in the world, uh, accessing a tough job market. These are things that other people deal with as well. And we can't have a conversation about racial justice without acknowledging the various struggles that people encounter uh, in the labor market and in the criminal legal system and in education, et cetera. Uh, but it's also important because when you get fed a steady diet of death, particularly black death at the hands of the state in some form or fashion, it's easy for people to just become numbers. It's easy for people to just become names on a, on a, on a, on a news blotter or a police blotter. And we have to constantly remind people that this was a person. Somebody loved him. He loved somebody. He mattered to people. And this is part of the story. And I think when we begin to use media and technology in new and innovative ways, and as Todd said, in increasingly democratic ways, it gives all of us the opportunity to do that. That's why I say her name was so important, so that these women wouldn't just be aggregates. Uh, That's why it was important to not just show Trayvon Martin his suspension record, you know, but people started showing Trayvon Martin with his dad and his mom and being hugged. You know, these are over the last decade. And at the the space, the, the other picture, right? Like it wouldn't be an astronaut. Right, exactly. But but Todd and I also understand that he doesn't have to want to be an astronaut to to deserve to live, right? He should he deserves to live because he's a person. And and so what we try to do in this book, I think, is strike that balance of saying, look, these are people, these are humans, these are complicated, wonderful, beautiful, flawed, tragic stories. And they're yeah. all there to be part of the conversation, but those aren't the stakes for, for their life. Yeah. yeah. Once, once you get into the into the conversation of was he a good person or a bad person, you're conceding that there was there was justice in his being killed, which is of course outrageous. Um, and 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 I and yet so there are right wing commentators who have done precisely that, comparing his life with Derek Chauvin's, as if there's there's uh, you know it's a competition between characters, you know. Um, another element of this is that the reason we go so deeply into the story, not only of George Floyd, but also of where he came from and the, the city that he grew up in and the, 
the struggles of the third ward in, in Houston is to show you that, you know, some of these things that he suffered from were, were he, he was put on that path by social policy. He was put on that path by mistakes of, of, uh, of the broader society. And, and, and to understand that more completely by seeing the history that's embedded in someone's life, we all have this. We all have a history. We arrive with a history. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I, I think you guys do. There's a passage that I wish I could read, but we don't have time, like entirety toward, uh, towards the end. I think it's where you're talking about how the video is then shared and mm -hmm. how, you know, it's seen in Palestine, how it's seen, you know, in different places and the, and the connection, if you starting from the beginning, you, you know, and then you, I think that was beautifully, beautifully done. <laughs> you know, uh, kudos to you. I wish I could read that section alone, but Todd, I want to go towards the end of the book towards the end there was this conversation about mind control or people or, or fake news where people are so weary of being controlled by the quote media or, <laughs> you know, uh, the proliferation of fake news and things like that, that you then also, also question what is being presented to you on a regular basis. Can you talk a bit yeah, about no. that section comes out of the, the, the discussion first of Charlottesville, which of course, to remind everyone was a, was a march that was put on by the um, uh, by um, uh, sort of Nazi sympathizers in Charlottesville, Virginia, um, where they marched um, to um, uh, protest the decision there by the local government to remove a statute of Robert E. Lee, the um, the uh, commanding uh, general of the uh, 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 Confederate Army in the Civil War, and. Um, uh, what they chant is blood and soil, blood and soil, which is a very interesting notion. Actually, it does relate all the way back to Nazi Germany, where the Bluten uh, and Broden, the, the Nazis used to used to chant. And the notion is that there's something in the blood and the soil that sort of confirms your identity, um, uh, that it's your land, it's your place, uh, that you speak for it and only you speak for it. And um, uh, and I and I think what we we discovered looking at that story and thinking of them saying blood and soil was that there is something of, uh, uh, in the air right now about the nature of our technology that we're moving in a sense from the real world into the technological world. We are, are increasingly are the landscape we live on is not one of trees and grass and and uh, flowers. It's the uh, uh, and soil. It's the one of um, of uh, bits and bytes and and um, uh, uh, and the the medium that we're talking to you through now, the technology of the internet, um, and that this has struck a certain level of fear into people um, that we're seeing um, played out in the most vicious way, which is to declare the the affinity for soil, for uh, racial identity. Blood is racial identity. Soil is the is the is the uh, assertion of the of the uh, rightfulness of uh, one particular peoples over the uh, dominion of the land. And so you see these sort of ancient kinds of conflicts that go all the way back through human history. And they're, they're being played out on the internet. They're being played out in social media. They're being played out finally again on the streets, as we saw in Charlottesville. Yeah, it's we can have a whole nother conversation on that mm -hmm. because I'm also a huge techie in addition to politics. Another, I'm a, was it because I'm Generation X, I was 
allowed to explore all of my interests <laughs> and not brand myself as one thing. But those discussions sort of in the VR space, as people are building worlds yeah. and things of like that is a whole, you know, other thing that I don't think is a conversation that is in public discourse yet is how people who, ha who share those same views yeah. are building what they believe are worlds in their own utopias in that internet space, like how that is also going to impact our societal norms and how it impacts racial injustice as well. Yeah. Joy, let me add one other thing to that because you know you talked about increasingly virtual reality is, and I, I mentioned this, that we're moving away from the physical landscape into the virtual landscape. Well, every time we have explored new territory in American history, it has, uh, uh, stoked the fires of racial animosity. And you think, for instance, of what stoked the fires of the Civil War? Well, it was the movement West, right? It was the, well, was slavery going to be allowed in the Western territories? That's what prompted the, the, um, the uh, turmoil that resulted in the Civil War. Every time we look at a new piece of landscape, it seems that the racial conflict gets stirred up again in Americans. And it, it's something very primitive. There's something very uh, attached to our own national identity, but it gets stirred up in a way that once again, we're seeing this racial sort of um, uh, 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 sensitivity being brought to the forefront um, in, in the fact that we're now we're moving into these virtual worlds. Yeah, Mark, I mean, from a historical standpoint, we can chart as, you know, certain historically marginalized groups get more advancement, there's always this backlash, right? We can track that from the beginning, you know, of this country, you know, even uh, we can go before Reconstruction, but even as we go from Reconstruction on, we get a little, you know, we get a little bit, we get advancement, then it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> it's too much, too much. Bring it back. <laughs> right. So every and so I feel the same way. And I just recently shared, I'm in a VR space with people from Thailand and you know the United States and Senegal and you know all these different places. But sometimes I appear just in VR as myself, right? Like you know, but and immediately the racial thing and it always comes from people in the United States. And I'm like, really? <laughs> like, I just appeared here. I didn't even say hi to you. Right. And sort of that immediate always backlash that you can't even enter a new space. You can't come West. <laughs> you can't come, you know, you can't go come into this new country without experiencing that backlash from that standpoint. Yeah. You know, the story of progress in this country is never smooth and linear. It's always two steps forward, one step back wherever there's advancement, there's retrenchment. That's simply the nature of struggle. And one of the things we do in this book, one of the threads that goes to this book is we document these struggles for racial justice, right? Whether it's Frederick Douglass being a kind of spokesman uh, for Negro abolitionists at the same time that he's being sort of admired and photographed, you know, the most photographed man of his time, you know, he's being his people are walking. He, white supremacists are shaking his hand on the train because he's the first guy to meet the president, you know, because he got to meet the president, you know. And at the same time, there's also an obsession with the brutality of slavery. There's a kind of uh, focus not on the liberatory aspects of his message, but honestly, some of the more salacious ones in terms of the violence, the kind of obsession with violence. Um, I would say that to say that there's a way that even as a man like Frederick Douglass is ascending, he's being pulled back down. At a moment where we have Black Lives Matter, 
you know, there are people fighting to restore the Confederacy or, or hold on some nostalgic uh, connection to a mythic American past, the, the way we never were, as Stephanie Kuntz uh, says, right? At every moment that we're marching and fighting and struggling, even on the racial justice front, there's gender justice that is being pulled to the background. And so there's always a struggle. And so when someone like you emerges on the scene and you have this new access and you're able to encounter these new places and the world is smaller and you can cover more territory, there are people we're still gonna see your blackness as an impediment. Um, the technologies and the media platforms that we access now don't stop that from being true. In some ways they highlight just how true it is. You know, look at the live raw footage of Kyle Rittenhouse. You can see how true it is. The technology doesn't make us inherently more humane or more just, uh, and it doesn't make us tell better or, or more fair stories. Um, and so for me, it, it's really important that we recognize how messy and complicated uh, progress is, how messy and complicated democracy is, and how messy and complicated these technologies and media spaces are in allowing us to try to make, you know, some semblance of, of progress. Yeah. Mark, just before you go, before we end, what is your hope of people who pick up the book? What is some internal reflection that you would hope someone reading the book would explore or what civic action could be prompted from reading the book? Yeah, you know, as an activist, as a scholar, as a citizen, as a human being, you know, my personal goal is to leave the world better than I found it. That's it. It's very simple. I just want to leave the world better than I found it. And so I try to go into every project hoping that the that the project will leave the world better the project will leave the world better than we found it. And in the case of this book, I hope that it it equips someone to do that. For some people, I think it will be reading history more honestly, having a more sober assessment of our history, not just for academic purposes, but so that they can figure out how to make change now. As a young person reading a book who's on the ground doing work, I want them to understand that's always been a struggle and a battle. Uh, there are people who are going to read this purely as academics and as scholars of technology and communication. And we want them to tell an honest, more fair story of 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 of, of how these tools have been used. Um, but I also feel a call from the ancestors. You know, um, so many have not had their voices heard clearly. They haven't had their stories told fully. So I hope you walk out of this book just knowing Ida B. Wells a little bit more. I hope you know Frederick Douglass' story a little bit better. And sadly, our young ancestors, George Floyd, I want people to know who he was, that he didn't die in vain. I want people to know that Breonna Taylor's life mattered and her story matters and that the world is changing because of the extraordinary sacrifices that they made, not willingly, but that nonetheless were made. And so for me, I hope that people walk away from this book feeling energized, refreshed, and prepared in some form, some fashion, to lead a world uh, better than they found it, you know, that, that, that's, that's my goal. Yeah. Todd. Well, you know, we quote, um, James Baldwin in this book where he said, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. And, um, it's a profound statement, I think, because, um, sometimes I think in the, in our, both for young people and for those of us who are not so young, dealing with the new world of media, we are very excited about things we can now see and things we can yeah. now show and things we can now prove. doesn't mean things are going to change. The technology by itself is amoral, but that does not mean you don't pick up the camera 
and you don't pick up the cell phone, you don't pick up the, your Twitter account and start making making um, uh, uh, posting statements that that are are aimed at, at at bringing the world to a better place, as Mark says it, um, because nothing can be changed until it is faced. That means that we need to see, and it, whatever degree we've helped people understand that they're agents of that seeing. They can make things because of the democratization of our media. They can make things be seen in their time. I hope the book has that profound impact on people. Yeah. Well, thanks to the both of you for writing it. You know, I guess the 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 last question, very last question I have is: I started our time this morning talking about that there is a lot of scholarship. There are a lot of writings, both in books, both on Twitter, both in articles, you know, talking about the current movement. But I'm also, also as a student, right, that the, the benefit of time and distance away from movements also reveal more, allows us to see differently. We're doing that with the movements of the 60s and 70s. We can put things in a little bit more context because there's distance. There's something to be said, obviously, for the primary sources, right, for the live, very lived experience and analysis. But there's also the distance. And just wondering, both Todd, from you as a journalist and Mark as a, as a scholar, right, how distance will impact more of the story? Because I feel the same way even about Obama's presidency, right? Like there's this, we need this distance to put it in context, but, you know, wanted the professionals to weigh in here. (laughs) Uh, You know, historians usually take a a generation, about 20 years or so before they believe that you could start writing about a particular time because it needs that time for all the, the dust to settle and for you to understand it more completely. I think in our own time, Technology has made us believe, rightly or wrongly, that that we can we should ratchet up that pace a little bit, and then we can begin to make because the, the pace of change is so rapid that we're mm. we're, we're getting uh, we're, we're it feels now like the Obama presidency was more than a generation ago. Um, but I do think that one of the things that's important is that we that we continue to assess what happened, that we look at it with fresh eyes. Because um, even in the time that we've took to tell the story of George Floyd, there's there's a richness, I believe, to the way that we tell this story that was not there in the contemporary accounts to, of, of um, uh, uh, two years ago. Um, and it's important for people to have that perspective, to understand it more by, by continuing to go back and see it again and again and again and see if you see something new. Um, and I, I hope that we've done that. Mark, any no, no, Todd, Todd, yeah, okay. Todd, Todd that up perfectly. You know, I, I think, I think that's right. The time space compression of the moment makes us feel like we have a different relationship to history and a different relationship to these texts sometimes. But at the end, I, I think for me, I, I, not even as a journalist or a scholar, because Todd is both of those things. I, I'm thinking about just as an activist, sort of how I, everything feels big in the moment. You know, um, every death feels huge in the moment. And there's a way that I didn't, and I, I, you could not have told me at one moment that Eric Garner wouldn't be the biggest story or that uh, uh, Walter Scott might not have been the thing. Um, and I don't know, you know, you know, George Floyd obviously is, has been a, a touch point in a way. Um, but I thought Mike Brown was going to be that thing. When I wrote uh, my previous book, I thought Mike Brown was going to be the biggest story of this generation in terms of 
change and fighting against social justice, social injustice and fighting against state violence. I, you could not have told me that Mike Brown would not have been the biggest story of the generation. And there are people who said that about Trayvon. Mm -hmm. um, and so George Floyd has trumped all of those things. Um, but I don't know what's next. And, and, and I think the technology, the media, all this stuff will shape how we come to understand these people and who they are. I hope we don't forget any of them. And I hope we hold on to all of them because they all matter. But it's just so tough to know what the touch point of our activism is going to be, what the touch point of our writing is going to be, you know, 20, 10, 20 years from now. So as Todd pointed out, those historians, oh, I, you know, there, I think there's some wisdom to saying, let's get some distance before we, before we say we know the whole story. Although there's also some urgency and necessity at telling the story right now. And that's why we didn't wait 20 years because, you know, there's a story that needs to be told right now that we think is urgent and important. And then we'll write another one in 20 years. <laughs> Well, I'll hold you both to that. Thank you, gentlemen, for coming to the front of the class and joining us for this important conversation. I really appreciate it. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more on Sunday Civics. How can it be that you love the most unlovable part of me? Of me. How could you see? Welcome back to Sunday Civics. Your host, L. Joy Williams, and I hope that you enjoy the conversation we have this morning with Mark Lamont Hill and Todd Brewster about their new book, Seen and Unseen. It was a fast read, but a very reflective read, Seen and Unseen, Technology, Social Media, and the Fight for Racial Justice. I learned so much more about the individual lives of those whose lives were stolen at the hands of law enforcement, but also just putting into context all that happened during that time and <laughs> layering that with that we were also in the midst of COVID is something to be reflective on as well. And it, it allowed me to have this personal reflection as well on how cell phones, social media, and our internet access overall impacts our ability to consume and process media and information. Certainly different, obviously media has always existed. And as we discussed earlier in the show, you know, at different points as media advanced. And in the book, they use the example of Ida B. Wells and others who use new newspapers, who <laughs> used telegraphs and all of those different mediums were all communication mediums, all media and how information traveled, who was controlling, distributing the information. And we have moved from people that we deem as journalists or newscasters or people we see on TV delivering us the information and that we have developed relationships with and began to trust to deliver information to now into an era where you have more ability in terms of who is delivering the content, as was mentioned in the book and into the conversation, a young girl filming a horrific incident has now become, you know, a content creator and really sharing that information, that news information and allow her recording and that recording being able to be used in a way, edited, uh, streamed so many different times 
and in different ways and for different motives. And to think about where we are, in, it, it is a whole business structure of content creation. You think about the influencers or the favorite YouTube personality or Instagram or TikTok personality that you follow. They are creating content. And we still have to go back to our basic principles of media literacy and consumption and determine for ourselves, you know, our media diet and how we digest that, how we process that information and using that information whether it's to produce change, as in our ability to produce racial justice, change in racial uh, justice here in the country, internationally, really on different issues. We use media content creation and really try to develop it in a way to pass legislation, to get to people, pull at people's heartstrings, to do something about poverty, about housing. Right. So we're all using the platforms in different ways to be able to do that work. But there is also something where I talk about being reflective of how we consume and how we process this information is really important, particularly when our kids, our young people are exposed. They themselves want to, quote, produce content. Those of us who have young kids and teenagers, we're doing TikToks and YouTube videos. I mean, my six-year-old wants a YouTube channel <laughs> because she watches other kids on YouTube or things like that. And she plays talking like, oh, I'm playing YouTube channel. I'm playing you know, producing content and talking to people on this other side. And, you know, just really got me thinking and putting into content context just that content creation standpoint and what we want to communicate, right? Our children want to communicate about a new toy, some shoes or what they're playing or things of that nature. But those of us who are creating content like I create this show, it is a way to educate. It is a way to entertain. It is a way to produce change, right? But we also know that people use these mediums, whether they are cable news networks, podcasts, or online internet websites and things of that nature to disrupt and to cause harm and to spread misinformation to promote war and how we are able to discern and develop media literacy skills that allows us to, you know, separate fact, fiction, people's opinion, and what we should keep, what we should use as information versus what needs to be discarded or challenged is really important. And so I challenge us and, you know, I said this this week, maybe I need to do a whole show again on media literacy, particularly that we're in this point of content creation and really do a, a deep dive on what we digest, what we share. And, you know, for a lot of people, you know, they use the, I'm going to do my own research. We saw a lot of that <laughs> during COVID where people are going to do their own research, which, you know, your own medical research. Okay. But people think doing re their own research is just Googling things that further support their point. And that's not research. That isn't 
reading and getting proper context and being able to discern what's fact, fiction, opinion, you know, to help come to an informed decision. And our media contributes to that fact, right? Because people then just say, oh, just Google it, look it up, right? They're able to say something that is partly true or using a little bit of truth and then tell you to go look it up, right? And then we have these algorithms in search that continue to reinforce that bubble that we are in where I'm just going to do research to further support the point that I believe or this famous person told me or my favorite YouTube creator or content creator told me was true. And the ability to question what you are being shown, what you read in that doing your own research, those are critical skills that we not only develop in school, hope we need to develop in school, but also that we have to develop as part of our civics toolbox. It is a tool that we have to use in our civics discourse in order to evaluate our position on proposed legislation, on the budget, on communicating with those who represent us in deciding whether or not we support their candidacy or not. That is an important part. Media literacy is an important part in, or important tool, I should say, in our civics toolbox. And it is something that we should continually challenge ourselves that even if it's something as simple of what you believe is your political value, I believe we need to invest in resources for the poor. I believe we need to do everything we can as a pro- to continue to prop up public education. Being informed and identifying things that are fact, fiction, opinion, the sources, the motivation for why people believe or have particular positions is really important. And that is what I challenge all of you listening to do. I challenge each of you. I'm not just going to say, just go look it up. (laughs) I'm actually going to give you a way to do that. And we're going to do another conversation on media literacy on how, what, what skills and what protocols do we put in place for ourselves to be able to do our own research, but also to discern what is being fed to us as it pertains to content. I'm trying to be very clear here, even in the space of Sunday Civics, what is fact, what is my opinion, what is my political beliefs, what are my political value try to be very transparent about that. But for others, they're not. And so it's really important for us to understand how we can discern what people are delivering and if there's a particular bent. I make no (laughs) apologies about my political values that I lean, you know, if you want to say something from a partisan standpoint that I lean, you know, democratic, I highlight that, I talk that, but also have other people who have other or different political values or political ideologies on the show to demonstrate that, to demonstrate that people can have different values, have different political ideologies, and still have a conversation and either believe in the same thing or believe something different. But everyone is not like that. And particularly when people are trying to sell something, when they are trying to pass something that's in their best interest, people are not going to be that forthright. 
And it is really important that we develop as part of our toolbox, it's part of our civics toolbox, that we develop the mechanism to be able to discern the difference. And then we have to also make sure that the people around us, that the communities we organize and engage, that our children and others are able to do the same thing. It's not enough to just say, oh, they they trying to brainwash. Well, who is they? Why are they trying to brainwash us? Like, what is the ultimate goal, right? We have to be able to discern those questions. Like, who is they? What are they trying to do? And what is the ultimate outcome? That, instead of just saying things like, do your own research, they trying to control us, you know they don't want us to gain power. I believe in naming and identifying on all particular issues, on all particular policy issues or legislative issues, we need to tell the truth and shame the devil and name names. And in those instances where we know who it is, we know what the alternative motives are, we need to do that. And that is part of, you know, our discernment as participants in this democracy, participants in our own governance and knowing what the motivations are, what people are trying to do on a particular issue. And we see that even in the current conversations, whether it's issues of women's reproductive choices, whether it's the budget, whether it's inflation, like there are all of those things that we need to be able to read new stories, watch TV, things or whatever, and discern from those conversations, from that content that is being projected to us, what is really happening. So I want to thank each and every one of you for coming to class again this Sunday morning. We'll be back next Sunday with more, way, way more. Listen, we already have shows booked in through July. So we'll have a new episode for you every Sunday from now through July. Can you believe it? <laughs> so including, I have a, a multi-part series on immigration. I know that was something that a number of people mentioned that they wanted to learn more about. So I have a multi-part series on immigration coming out where we're talking to members of the Congressional Comprehensive Immigration Closers Group about comprehensive immigration reform in this country. We're talking to DREAMers about that program. We're talking to immigration attorneys for people to even understand what the process is for becoming a U.S. citizen, because a lot of people are, you know, if you don't have family members, either close or distant, who have gone through this process, most people think it's a line and you fill out some papers and that's it. And there are a number of things that I'm even ignorant of as it pertains to immigration in this country. And so we're going to bring people to the front of the class to not only educate me, but educate all of you about this. And so that begins shortly. And I'm looking forward to those conversations. So if you have questions on immigration, please hit me up on Twitter at Eljoy Williams. Hit me up in the DMs about immigration. No foolishness. <laughs> you can email me joy at sundaycivics.org and wherever you see Sunday Civics and give us the questions that you have about immigration so that we can incorporate them in our immigration series, which starts soon. So thank you so very much for listening. We'll be back next Sunday. Have a good one.